when I would visit my grandparents' house, they had a custom that before we left, every time, we would hold hands and pray. And uh, my granddad, he was a long prayer. And he, uh, as a little boy, it was, it was a taxing thing. Was, I think it was a character-building thing for me uh, just to stay still and hold hands. And uh, listen, I, uh, when he, we asked him to pray at our wedding, and uh, seriously, he prayed five minutes. Uh, I'm not exaggerating. It was five minutes. You know how long five minutes are when someone's publicly praying? Uh, and we're all standing there. Uh, you fast forward, and it still takes two minutes on the videotape. But it's uh, w- one of the things he he prayed for as as I was uh, growing, and I noticed it mainly in, in high school. He would pray for each one of the family members, uh, which was one of the reasons why it took so long. But he would pray for us, and one of the things he prayed for me was that I would grow in grace. Uh, what does that mean? I, I remember thinking that when when he said. I, Lord, will you help him grow in grace? And I thought, I've never heard of that terminology. How do you grow in grace? And, and it was later on in life, I was reading passages, and, and lo and behold, Paul prays for members of the church that they would grow in grace. I thought, oh, this is where granddad got it. But still, what does this mean to grow in grace? And, and I, by the grace of God, I've come to know more about what that means. And I just want to share with you Uh, a little bit about what that means, because that is our uh, subject for this coming week of seeking Him. And you cannot seek God apart from the grace of God, alright? Now, so far we've learned that seeking Him, one of the very first steps is humility. And I'm going to tell you, never, never get past humility. The day you get past humility is the day you grow away from God. Do you understand that? If you find humility is not a part of your life, you're going to find that God has little to do with your life. Okay? So humility. And the next step was being honest. Uh, Be honest with who you are before God. Expressing that before God. Expressing that before others. And then, so consequently, repentance comes. You cannot be repentant unless you're honest, unless you're humble uh, with with yourself and with God. And uh, you cannot... You cannot seek Him if you do not have repentance. Godliness means a life filled with repentance. I, I think as we are learning this past week, we found you know, repentance is a foreign concept to us. It's something that we don't do frequently. I think is a sign that we don't grow much with God. If you found repentance as a new thing for your life this week, it shows you how far we must grow to be with God, to be repentant. And, and so I've shared with you before that uh, uh, godliness is the abundance of repentance, not so much the absence of sin. Sin's here, all right? It's in our life. We, we can't get past that. So it's not the avoidance of sin as much as the abundance of, repunt, of repentance. And I shared last time that it's, it's okay for you not to be okay coming here. All right? It's okay for you not to be okay, but it's not okay for you to stay that way. There must be repentance. And so, here's the good news. I, I think some of you are, are kind of scared each week as I'm preparing. I'm like, oh, what is he going to say this time? All right? Now, from this point on, it's, it's, it's a good thing. All right? Because what we're going to talk about now is God's working in us. 
And the very first thing that happens as we repent, as we're humble, as we're honest, is the grace of God. All right. So I'm going to talk about three things, and then there's so much more, but these are three general actions of grace. Uh, and we're going to look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, as our point of focus in, in studying this. Uh, there are a lot more verses that, that I will mention and that you can certainly look up. Uh, but for our purposes, let's look at Titus chapter 2. And uh, this is one of what's called the pastoral letters. A few letters that are written uh, especially to pastors to give direction to the church. And uh, in Titus chapter 2, uh, the first ten verses is just a list of behaviors, a list of do and do not. Uh, and he spells it out to older men and younger men, older women and younger women. These slaves, employers, these are the things that you're to be doing that marks godliness, lifestyle. And then in verse 11, he talks about how all that happens. And so, with this thought of mind, let's, let's direct our, our minds to this passage. Let's stand as we read together that Second Timothy, or Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify him for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You may be seated. Well, the very first thing as we look at this passage of what grace does is simply grace saves. Okay? Grace is is the saving work of God. Now, um, you're going to read this week a, a great story to help you understand what the grace of God is. And it's the story of... Um, a, a judge, a father, and a son. Uh, a man comes in and kills the son of the father. Of the father, and so the man gets caught. He's brought before the court case before the judge, and uh, normally uh, there would be a sentence given. There would be punishment of some sort, perhaps maybe even death if the witnesses are there. And uh, you say, well, that would be the justice of God. That would be good. But then. Uh, let's say that father comes to the judge and says, no, I want him pardoned. I, I do not press charges against this man. That would be amazing. That would be the mercy given there to, uh, to withhold to that person what he deserves. That's the mercy, all right? So when God does not give us what we deserve, it is mercy. But then, let's suppose that father comes to the court and says, not only do I want him pardoned, I'd like to be his father, give me the rights to this man to be his father. Let him come to my house. I will take him as my son. I will feed him. I will teach him. I will love him. Now that is grace. And that is beyond what humans see day in and day out. So grace is to give us what we do not deserve. Mercy is to withhold from us what we do deserve. Okay? And so when we're talking about grace, we're not just talking about a saving work, but we're talking about something that goes on. You just need to know that what separates believers in Jesus Christ from every 
And I'm going to say every religion, be it Muslim, Mormonism, be it Buddhism, some versions of Catholicism, is simply the fact that we don't earn our salvation. We don't have a right standing with God by how we live our life and that we've lived a certain way. But what is unique is that the Bible teaches that He knows our sinful situation, He knows our pridefulness, and yet God saves us in the midst of our pride. God gives and extends grace to us to make us right with Him. And see, uh, one of the, the passages we read right here, it says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But uh, let's think about that. It talks about, it, it seems like he's talking about a person here, isn't it? The grace of God appeared. What he's referring to is the first coming of Christ. You know what John 1.14 describes Christ as? It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, beheld his glory. The glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so if you wanted to say, what does grace look like? Well, John wrote, hey, I've seen grace and it's personified in Jesus Christ. In his face, in his person. You wonder what grace looks like? Look at Jesus Christ. He is full of it. But let me share with you another verse. Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 4 through 9, and, and I'd probably add verse 10 as well, be good. Um, but God, being rich in mercy, right? You know what mercy is? Not giving you what you deserve. We deserve separation from God. We deserve hell. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's not of your own selves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. So, this glorifies the giver. It doesn't glorify the object of grace. It glorifies the giver of this grace. So when we get to heaven, I'm not going up to Keith and say, Keith, hey man, what did you do to get to heaven? Can you tell me what you did? And Greg would say, well, you know, I, uh, I, gave, I gave 50% of my income all my life to the poor and out, down and out. I said, oh, yeah, Greg, let me tell you what I did. You know, I gave 75%. And you see what happens when we start saying that we're saved by works? It glorifies ourselves. It's boasting. But instead, the Bible teaches that heaven is a place where the angels and all those in the presence, that when they see Jesus, they fall on their knees and their feet uh, on, the, on the floor before, before Christ, before the Lamb, and says, All honor, glory, and power be unto the Lamb who was slain for our sins. It is a constant praise and acknowledgement of what Jesus has done. Why? Because we're saved by grace. I just want you to understand 
that as you've done this exploring, you realize, man, I didn't I have to write down the fact that I'm a prideful person. I have to write down the fact that I'm a liar, that I'm a sinner. I have to write the, isn't it hard to write down some of you who actually made it to day five? Which, by the way, that's important. <laughs> okay? There's no point in doing day one, two, and three if you're not doing day five. So what's the point of having medicine if you're not taking it? Okay? You're, you're applying it. But you write this stuff down about you. like, oh, I didn't know that I was so bad. You are. The only reason we don't see is because of our pride. All right? But God sees that. And He sees so much more than just what we are willing to admit. But He says, I love you. I want you to be with me. I extend my grace. No, not only do I pardon you, I want to treat you as my child. And I want to raise you up. This is done by faith so that we praise God. Romans chapter 6 verse 14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Okay? So there, therefore there's no condemnation there. Now, let's keep on going here. And we see verse, verse 12. This is what it says here. Training us to renounce ungodliness. Now, what's training us? Go back to that first phrase. The grace of God has appeared training us. Do you understand? The grace of God trains. The grace trains. It is an educator. It is an instructor for us. What does He instruct us to do? Well, it gives us specifically some actions here in verse 12. But notice, when we go down to verse 14... It tells us what the purpose is behind all this. Grace is the dynamic quality that God gives us to change the desires and power to obey Him. All right, it, it is an energizing work. I remember, I remember watching Star Wars, and I was just enthralled with this concept of the Force. Now, whoa, the Force! I can move a spaceship, and I can fly in the air force, you know. Of course, that was also God <laughs> and Star Wars, which is a slight problem if you're a Christian, alright? Now, but I think about that, I like, you know, the force has this mystic quality, this grace. It is uh, the Spirit of God that does something even more amazing than me find. It changes my heart. And anyone who's ever tried to change their desires understands the power of this. It is something that changes my want to, my desires. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's a powerful verse. Hebrews 4.16. You'll be memorizing this week as you work together on this. Just to know that there is grace. There's something that can help us be like Christ. 2 Corinthians 9.8 God is able to make all grace abound to us so that having all sufficient in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. That verse is worth contemplating and memorizing noticing all the all is in there that God helps us through His grace to do His good work. So what is God's purpose for your life? What is grace training us to do? Well Romans 8.29 says that God's working us God's grace is working us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Notice the first 14 of the passage of our focus here. What did He do? He gave Himself for us. Why? He gave Himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to buy us back from all lawlessness. He gave Himself to purify for Himself 
a people for his own possessions. He gave himself to purify a people who are zealous for good works. It's to be like Christ. The type of person who loves to be like Christ. The type of person who loves the things that God loves. The type of person who loves to do those things that glorify God. Um, let me just bring it this way. I, what would you think if I um, I just share with you that um, just kind of uh, my own marriage life and said, you know what, uh, you know we're gonna have to find some time to to go out and go on a date. I I just I feel like a, a sense of a duty that I need to make sure that that we do that. And what if I said, well, you know I, I need to go home. Um, I, I have to talk with my wife. I have to talk with her. There, you know, I feel like I, I've got some duties here. What if it was anniversary time and and I said, okay, I have a a duty to get a flower for my wife. I, I've I've got a I've got a responsibility uh, to take her out. I've got a, I've got a, something I struggle with, some responsibilities of just talking to her. Are all these things true? Yes and no. Yes, I do have some responsibilities. But no, if that's all they are, then I've missed the greater reason. Ladies, is that romantic? Here, here's my responsibility, bam. Alright, let me check that off. No. Ladies don't want guys to romance them out of duty because then it's not romance. Ladies do not want husbands to feel like they have to talk with them. And guys, you don't want girls to do that with you either. You want a lady who wants to be with you and not struggles to be with you. Alright, now take that analogy and apply it to our guy. Do you understand... What we're saying when we say to someone else, I really struggle with reading the Bible and talking with God. Did you get that? I really struggle with reading the Bible and talking with God. I've got a duty. I want to check it off. (laughs) How does that make God feel? If that makes ladies feel like bottom what does it do with our God when we say that I have to worship God it's a real struggle to be with God's people now it may be because of the people but it shouldn't be because of our, of our God it's a real struggle to sing you know Just listen what that reveals and now listen carefully what that reveals is pride it reveals pride. How? Because worshiping God doesn't fit your agenda, therefore you struggle. Worship God doesn't fit your priorities, therefore you struggle. You feel like you have to, though you really want to go to work, play golf, read, watch TV, get on the computer, whatever it is. There's a problem with pride. And we've exalted our desires above God. Notice what the Bible says. Why why did Jesus come? Jesus came, according to verse 14, to create a people 
who are zealous for good works. They want to glorify God by their life. That's why He came. Jesus Christ didn't come so that you could just drudgingly go through your day and try to find ways to glorify God. Jesus didn't come for that. Does that glorify God? Okay, no. Jesus didn't come for that. Jesus came to create a people who loved Him and wanted to be with Him and wanted to be the type of person that God wanted to be. A, a people for His own possession to be redeemed from lawlessness. All right? So God is working through that and grace is training us. It's changing our desires. And notice specifically how that happens in verse 12. We're, we're, we're becoming Christ-like. So how does that happen? One, there's the negative aspect to, to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions. That's the negative aspect. And then positively, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Now, um, there's a, a, a plant I've got in my study in my, or my sunroom at home. And it's, I've had it for about 10 years. It's, it's a peace lily I got from my grandmother's funeral. And I like that. You know, I, I, like, I like to see that it continues to, to live and, and put out flowers. And, but I noticed it had got rotated the last week or so. I thought, what? What had happened? It looked like someone just shaved off half of the, the plant. It was all leaning to one one side. And so it looked real bad as it's been rotated around. What's happened? Well, plants need the sun. All right? It, by getting in the sunlight, it receives what it needs to grow and thrive. So what we need as plants before God is the sunlight of God's grace. To be in the position of, of receiving the grace of God. Some of you are working in gardens. This is the time to do that now to get your ground right. right? You want to make sure it's in the south side where the sun can hit it. Because that's how your plants are going to grow. It needs to have that sun. And so I'm just going to present to you that you need the grace of God to do that. How do you get the sunlight of God's grace in your life? Well, let me just share with you what keeps God's purpose from being fulfilled in your life. Pride. Pride. Pride is as the shade of trees that keeps the sun from reaching the plants. It's an amazing tree. It's so much shorter than a sun, but yet it can block plants from sun. Your ego, your character, your person is so much less than God, but yet it's enough to block the sunlight of God's grace in your life. You see... The problem is, is pride gets in our life. Therefore, because we're prideful, we are opposed to God because we're filled with ourselves and our achievements of what we want. God gives no grace. Therefore, because you have no grace, you have no desire, you have no power to do the things of God, which means that when time comes to either obey or disobey, you choose to disobey. And therefore, it, provi- it provides a life of ungodliness. You cannot obey God without the grace of God. You cannot have the grace of God and have your pride at the same time. So what is God's procedure for fulfilling His purpose in your life? James 4, 6. Is that we talked about this and when we looked at 1 Peter 5 and we looked at humility. God resists as opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So His procedure is humility. This is why humility is so important. That when the part opportunity comes and you have humility in your life, you realize, you know, life really shouldn't be about my agenda, about what I want, my goals in my life, my pride, my reputation. It's about God. 
And because you have humility before God, God what gives you grace. What is grace? Is the desire. It is the power. It is the heart. It is the want to, to do what God's called you to do. Therefore, when that time comes, you want to obey God. You want to love God. And so you obey. Which produces a lifestyle of godliness. I'm, sometimes Christianity is, is, is built as this rigid, heartless, emotionless thing that you just got to go by all the rules. I'm going to tell you that godliness with grace is great heart rejoicing. It is emotional. It is passionate. Puritans got a raw deal when we say something's uh, puritanical, which means uh, rigid, without emotion. If you study their lives, you find, hey, that wasn't true. They had laughter. They had joy. They had love. They had romance because they knew how to be humble before God and thereby get the grace of God so that their heart's desire was met. John Piper is introduced in their church in Bethlehem up in, um, up north. A, a great statement. And I love the statement. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. And that's so true. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. So, this takes us to the next action. We see that, that grace trains, it is, it is a, a reproving, renouncing part of our life. When we say, how can, I, how can I get rid of these bad habits? It's going to be by hum, humility, coming before God, letting the grace of God come in, and replacing the bad habits with good habits. Because you want to. To live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Now, this verse 13, it tells me something else that is in, in keeping with the grace training aspect, and that is this. Grace redirects. Grace redirects. You see in verse 13 that there's a new lifestyle, that, that this, the training that God's doing through His grace, training us to live in such a way whereby we're waiting for something. We're waiting for a blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so... It, this is parallel with what we've seen in verse 11. We're forced, the grace of God appeared, now the glory of God appears. Before the glory of God appears, there must be the grace of God in our life. You want the glory of God in your life, you must have the grace in your life. If you want the grace of God in your life, you've got to be humble. You've got to be humble. You've got to take up your cross and die to yourself before there is the glory of God in your life. Now, you can't help but notice the focus of this life is totally different. It is looking for something. Yesterday, you know, last night, the, the, uh, the ladies of, of Faith Girls uh, held out or hosted a, a ball, a father-daughter ball, okay, purity ball. And it, it was a, a great night uh, for those of us who are here with our little girls. Uh, I'm going to tell you, it was on my daughter's minds for a long while. You know, it got changed because of the snow date in February, and, you know, they just had to hold on to the hope. Uh, they, they just love the whole aspect of, of getting dressed and, and ready to go. And, um, you know, we had to be here at church yesterday at 630. Um, I had uh, washed the car. And I was getting ready to take the car out and get it dried. And, um, it was 5 o'clock. It was about an hour and a half before. And as I'm backing out, girls are running in their dresses, their ball dresses, because they're outside looking to see when I was leaving and they wanted to make sure they weren't missing anything. I just said, 
when they saw me, I was all grungy and nasty. Like I said, hey, you know, we're not, we're not time to go yet. We still have another hour and a half. I'll be back, I promise. All right? But it just showed their expectation of something they were longing for. Yeah, they're playing. They're doing all the things, occupying their time. But it was only occupying their time until the main event came. When grace works in our life, it changes the main event for us. The main event, notice what it says, verse 13. The main event is the appearing of the glory of our great God. So when that time comes, we're dressed ready to roll when God comes. When Jesus comes and says, hey, I'm wanting to be there with you. Yeah, I'm doing my thing, I'm working, I'm doing my family, I'm doing my playing thing, but all the while I've got my eye out, I'm looking because my hope is changing. The grace of God is redirecting things in our life. He does this in in all the circumstances of our life. Notice, all the circumstances of your life is, is being in place and God is being the instructor and allowing these things happen in your life and behind it is the grace of God. So when you're in traffic and you're not there in time, and you're just getting frustrated, and steam's coming out, guess what? Welcome to Grace 101. God is working to help you to be Christ-like in that time. And when worse things happen, grace is still working. Elizabeth Elliot, in this week's What You'll Be Reading, she has a great quote of what suffering is. Since suffering is, uh, let's see if I can say it right, is when you have what you do not want, okay? Suffering is when you have what you do not want, and you don't have what you do want. Got it? Suffering is when you have, is what you, is when you have something you do not want, and when you want something that you do not have. Paul had that. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10. It says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. And and don't think of this like a a splinter. This is much more than a splinter, okay? This is like being impaled on a stick. It's the image here uh, of that word, thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me. To keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implore the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then... I am strong. Now what's happening here? Paul has something that he does not want. Here's the temptation that we have when we're in Paul's situation. God, if you will only take this away, then I can live right. If you just take this away, then I can be godly. Then I can be I can, I can do things, Lord, for you. If you just take this away, then I can be happy. If you just take this away, then life will be as I want it to be and everything will be right with this world and I can worship you better if you take that away. Now, do you realize what you're doing when you say that, when you say that mentally or verbally? 
You're saying my hope is in this change. My hope is in I hope this change, and not only is it my hope in it, my, my hope is in it. Then I can have joy. Then I can worship. Then I can... You know what you've done? You've lifted above God. And your hope is no longer in God, but in this change that could happen. So how does God address it? Well, Paul, I won't do it. This is Paul talking. This is a guy that got beat, stoned, moved. Who knows where his family is, if he has a wife. Ultimately gets killed. And we say, well, Paul, you know, isn't he qualified to get a few things from God? No. He doesn't qualify. Why? Because we don't get things from God from obligation. We get things from God by grace. It has nothing to do with sacrifices and obedience. It has everything to do with God. And so, he says to Paul, no. I'm not going to take it away from you. Because my grace is sufficient for you. What is he doing? Redirecting the heart and thought and mind of Paul away from a change of behavior to God himself. If you cannot praise God when life is difficult, you won't praise God when life is good. If you can't praise God when life is difficult, you won't praise God when life is good. Because you made the circumstances your God. And so he says to Paul, no. You're going to have to learn. I am your treasure. I am enough. I am the source of your joy. And you will learn to depend on me more. So that I can do more through you. Who does God use? God uses that one who has his hope set on him. Who says... God's grace is sufficient for me. Carissa? And so, here's a a change we've got to have. What will we do? Will we set up this thing? Or will we set up the grace of God? Which would be more sufficient? You know, in the early 1500s, something happened that changed science. A man by the name of Nicholas Copernicus came upon the scene and he kind of had as a side hobby astronomy. And in his observations, he made some interesting statements. He said, you know, the universe and the sun does not revolve around Earth. Everybody thought up to that point it revolves around Earth. Part of it was because of the religious people of the day. They said, you know what? The Bible, we see in the, in the Bible that God is working toward the history to redeem mankind. Man has become the focal point. God is working. And so we see the sun come and go uh, over us. It, it's about man. It's about this earth. Copernicus said, no, that's not true. He died as the work was being published. Galileo took up that same reply. He got persecuted by the church because he made such audacious statements as, well, no, (laughs) no, the uh, sun does not revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. It's called the Copernican Revolution. Let me just present to you that many of us need a Copernican Revolution. 
to understand that this world does not revolve around you. It doesn't revolve about what you want done. And here's the beautiful thing. When you realize that the source of your life is found in the sun, you'll be as a plant thriving and growing and bearing much fruit to the glory of God. But you have to take up your cross be His disciple. Are you worth, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to say, life is not about me. I've got a lot of things I love to see done. They may or may not happen. I love to see my children grow up and get married someday and I'd love to see their children. But that may not happen. I'd love to sit on a porch someday with my wife and reminisce when we're old and can barely hear one another. But that may not happen. I'd love to see this church and be a part of this church and watch it thrive and watch it plant churches here and impact the world. But that may not happen. I'd love to have enough money to take care of my family, to take care of the house. That may not happen. I'd love to be able to enjoy my day and go where I want to and spend my day as I want to and just enjoy the sunlight. But that may not happen in my life. There may be a day and time when the grace of God leads me to places the situation where that's no more. Maybe I die, my wife dies, I may see my children die, I may be put in prison someday. I may die in a car accident. You may too. And you gotta ask yourself, is that okay? As long as you have the presence of Christ? Is that okay? As long as you have the grace of God, I assure you, that's what glorifies God. But in that day and in that hour, if that is to happen, here's one thing I know. Grace will train me, will change me, and I will have great joy because He's working in my heart to desire Him. You ready for your Copernican revolution? It starts by admitting that you're not the center of the universe. Will you humble yourselves? Will you be honest? Will you repent? And then praise God for His grace. Let's pray.